we ran it on QI a few years ago. Yeah. Um, which was, there's no such thing as a fish. Yeah, there's no such thing as a fish. No, seriously, it's in a, the Oxford Dictionary of Underwater Life. It says it right there, first paragraph, no such thing as a fish. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a new weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with three elves, James, Andy and Anna. And once again, we've just got around the microphone and we're going to share our favorite facts from the last seven days. So in no particular order, here they are. All right, so uh, let's begin with you, Anna. What's your fact? Uh, so this week I discovered that uh, rats were once the size of hippos. That is humongous. Yeah, it's pretty big. Well, basically, it's not all rats. It was discovered in 2008. It's called the Josepho Artigasia monacei. We'll put that on the website so you can look it up. And um, they think they could have grown up to 2.5 tons. Um, wow. So that's like the average uh, hippo, I think, is about 1.5 tons. amazing. The largest known snake in history, and this was called Titanoboa carrigenensis. Um, it was about the length of about three or four cars. What, so what, what length would that be? So that is 50 feet long. Yeah, what kind of cars? Like a Lamborghini or one of those little ones that you can park <laughs> sideways? Or a smart Essex Hindu yelling out the side of it. That's But no, there is a longer snake that was discovered. It's just never fully been authenticated, which was Percy Fawcett, the great explorer. He was a snake? No. <laughs> he claimed to have shot a 62-foot oh. anaconda. You know, and he was a, he was very reputable as a as an explorer, so he wouldn't have he wouldn't have bragged. In 1910, Theodore Roosevelt uh, offered a reward to the first person who presented a snake that was 30 feet long, and I don't think anyone ever claimed it. Well, it's is that quite clever? Because is that a catch twenty two or something similar? Because you've <laughs> offered this reward, but once you've shot a thirty foot plus snake, how are you transporting it back <laughs> um, to show it off? Yeah. And also, even if if you do see a snake that's longer than thirty feet, my first thought would be to run away, not to capture it for well, a reward. That's, you don't have the hunter's mentality. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if all people thought like that, the stately homes of England would be much emptier. In places. <laughs> so, what I'm else right. do we know about this rat? Um, okay, so it was actually found in nineteen. 19- 1987 in uh, Uruguay. It was apparently it was just put in a box in the Natural History Museum. It makes you wonder what else is in boxes at the moment which people put aside five yeah. or ten years ago. Yeah. yeah, I thought oh, I'll deal with that later. Do you yeah. remember that new species they found in a market in Cambodia or something? Oh yeah, yeah. A rat, it was not, it? it was thought to be extinct. It creature. was a rat, and yeah, they thought it was extinct. They thought it was extinct. They yeah. found it on a kebab, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, no, in Laos as well. I remember Bill Bailey, um, his neighbour. Uh, went to Laos and had a picture of what he thought was a new species of I think it was porcupine and he showed Bill and Bill took it to uh, someone who studies porcupines and they said yeah this is a new species and it was just there sitting in the marketplace Mm -hmm. and the guy said as well that on this table because it was a bunch of animals being sold for food he was like there's at least like three or four new species that we don't know about in science yet sitting on this table that reminds me of another one there was a guy who bought a sea urchin I think it was on eBay and that turned out to be a new species. Well, right, first of all, <laughs> why was he buying a sea urchin on eBay? Remember in the 19th century, you would have, um, like, old explorers would get a load of... They would go on an exploration, they'd buy a load of weird stuff and keep it in their house, like um, mm. Sir John Soane's mm. museum up the road. And I like to think that when I have a bigger house, I'll have a cabinet of curiosities and it'll be just stuff I bought off eBay. 
<laughs> and it's just a new way of exploring and finding new things. Yeah. yeah. Someone recently found some of the first Charlie Chaplin bits of film considered to be lost, and that was an eBay purchase. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. There's constant finds going on. Not just with the natural yeah. world. We just need a really big spreadsheet as a humanity, and then if we just put everything on there that we don't have, you can just check in according to what you know about. Like a stock take? Yeah. Like the internet. <laughs> well, you can call it whatever you like. <laughs> if you want to make up a name for it, that's fine. <laughs> so, going back to massive animals, yeah. I was reading about the largest kangaroos, and apparently there were, they're extinct now, but there were kangaroos that were up to 9 feet 10 tall in <laughs> oh. Australia. Wow. And imagine how big that is. What kind like, of bounce what? could they get? Well, exactly. And I read that they were hunted to extinction. And that's pretty Bold. hardcore hunting, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> They're not like you, James. They didn't, they didn't <laughs> oh just run away and gone back to eBay. But hunting a 10-foot kangaroo. <laughs> yeah. With what as well, yeah. It's not like they were shooting them down with rifles. I really like imagining what it would have been like if you were like dropped on Earth any long period of time ago, like three million years ago. It just would have been completely mental. Because at the same time that rats were like sporting this enormous size, there were elephants in Cyprus that weighed only 200 kilograms. Oh. Yeah, really well, sweet. That's still pretty... How big... I don't know how, how big, big is, that is. I, do you know what? I genuinely... When I went, oh, for some reason, I thought that was the size of um, my Kitten. fist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 200 I, kilograms. I, I don't know why it sounded so tiny. I wasn't thinking about you it. You have a very inflated sense of your own strength <laughs> as well. That's a hefty punch. There's a cool thing. So animals shrink 10 times as fast as they grow. So... In 24 million generations, an, an animal the size of a mouse can grow until it's the size of an elephant. But it takes a much shorter time for them to shrink back down again, about 2 million generations. It must be weird if you fast-forward the footage of Earth, let's say, somehow, <laughs> there was someone filming the whole thing, just yeah. to watch these animals just one suddenly go... Another one go yeah. and, and the and the power play between them. It would have been a time where elephants would be like, stay away from the massive yeah. twenty times the size of us <laughs> things yeah. over there. And now a rat would be petrified of a or not. Aren't elephants scared of mice? Is that a hangover? Is, or is that something you saw in a cartoon? Yeah, definitely in a cartoon. Is that not a real thing? I don't think no. that's true. Okay. No. They are scared of bees, I think, but not... I was surprised to learn that Queen Victoria had a rat. Did she? Yeah, really she, she had an official rat catcher. He, was, he, he doubled as his job. He was a rat catcher and a mole destroyer. <laughs> and his name was Jack Black. He supposedly um, also gave a pet rat to Beatrix Potter. Wow. Yeah. And so her book, uh, Samuel Whiskers, is dedicated to the rat of the same name. And oh. he, was, he was... Those job titles were by appointment of Queen Victoria. Hang on, you're saying that she had a rat and also a rat catcher. And did he catch it? Yes. So what, <laughs> would she release it? No, she... If she <laughs> for him to catch <laughs> ceremonially. <laughs> and now, the 4th of August, the catching of the rat begins. <laughs> Okay, let's move on to fact number two. Uh, I was reading this month's 14 Times magazine. It was an article on the Pope, and that's where I found this fact, which is during his 27-year run as Pope, John Paul II took over 100 ski vacations. Very extravagant. So and he did, it, he did it... He did it... a year? Uh, yeah. He wouldn't have taken as many when he was old. Oh, no, no, right. he, he, he did it for about a 15-year period. 
Whoa! Yeah. Well, so he took like seven a year or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to sneak out. He used to get very bored with the Vatican. And so they would, genuinely, they would get into a car and they would drive to the mountains. And he stayed in a resort with uh, a mate of his who he would go skiing with and he was a ski instructor. And this in, guy used I'd to... like to think he would be in full garb as well. Yeah. You know, like... yeah. But his, his friend said that he skied like a swallow. Is that good? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Because swallows are... F- almost famous for not skiing. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first thing you think when you say the word swallow is not skis. But he he was uh, so he was a very sporty guy. He was old John yeah. Paul. He was second. a goalkeeper, wasn't he? When he was a yeah, he was. Younger. He played for his school and his university, and wow. he might have carried on if World War Two hadn't broken out. Well, his his um the Wait, pitch that he used to play on in his hometown is a sacred site that pilgrims often go. Really? If there's a list of places to go, that's one of the places, oh, really? one oh, of wow. his old fields. Yeah. Do they take away turf or things like that? The article that I read uh, was an article to do with the fact that a bit of clothing with a stain of his blood was stolen recently and I know that uh, that would be seen as quite sacrilegious to steal something like that but it seems that everything that was to do with his is being left so I doubt anyone would take any turf out of respect because okay. well, they see them as kind of holy I don't sons. know he's going to be um, probably um, a saint if he's not already he's, this, uh, this April 27th he's being fast tracked isn't he so yeah. people just love relics and I remember reading I don't know if this is true but then they, they gave away relics for free on the internet after he died so that people wouldn't then start trying to steal and sell relics because they would flood the market with these other ones yeah mm. there yeah. was a, there was someone in the 14th or 13th century who um, bit off the finger from the hand of a relic in a church. Do you remember this, James? I remember that story, but I yeah. don't remember You sort of bend down to, oh, uh, please, I'll kiss the finger, the ho- holy finger of the holy hand of the saint, and then just, just oh, bite yes. off a joint and keep it in your mouth until you've left. <laughs> Guys, I got it! <laughs> did you know? Start the car! <laughs> Dan, but did you know that he was a member of the Harlem Globetrotters? I, I did, actually. Were you about to say that? Yeah, no, because he, he was a total sports enthusiast, so on top of being a... Um, on top of skiing, he also... Uh, spent a lot of time with Muhammad Ali whenever he got the chance to he um uh, so he was a huge boxing enthusiast as is the Dalai Lama loves boxing I don't know what it is about religious heads I, I should say though my source for this is Brian Blessed <laughs> who claims he sparred with the Dalai Lama when the he Dalai was, uh, Lama does not look like he'd throw a weighty punch like not on your you know 23 stone fist level at all <laughs> but like he really looks pretty weak no offence yeah DL. I suppose so. <laughs> Anyway, I, so yeah, I got this fact uh, from the Fortean Times magazine, which is a magazine about the world of strange phenomena. I highly recommend it's anyone. It's a brilliant listening. magazine. It's fantastic. Uh, one of the QILs writes for it, Matt Coward, he writes um, a myth conception column for it. Yeah. Which is like a general ignorance thing, and it's great. It shocked me when I read in this article that he went skiing, because you kind of imagine that popes grew up as religious people. Mm straight from the get-go didn't have a life before the latest pope that we have Pope Francis one of his early jobs was he was a nightclub bouncer Um, actually when you think about it isn't his role effectively as like what, the bouncer, greatest bouncer ba- now? <laughs> no. Well, he could let you, if well, you did if something bad. He could let you into heaven. Who's God in this? Is God the manager of the club? Yeah, God's the I owner. That sounds right. God's the owner of the club. I thought God was a DJ, according to that popular hit yeah. song. God is a DJ. <laughs> life is a dance floor. The Pope is the bouncer. <laughs> How about Ministry of Sound? <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, also, the, the new Pope, Pope Francis, he loves um, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Does he? And often in his talks, he cites, he'll, he'll use examples where he'll say, it's like Frodo and Bilbo. <laughs> like, he'll use them That's as actual... really funny. Yeah, yeah. He has, a, he has a degree in chemistry. I wouldn't have expected that. And he has one lung. He has one lung. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, what do they do with lung. the other one? I just, you know... He gave it to the poor. Uh, <laughs> He does do that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing. He can't have donated it to the poor because the Pope is not allowed to donate his organs. I read this in is an article a while ago. Yeah. Um, the, there was a guy who was a member of the Vatican Health Council and they asked him about it and he said he couldn't do it because the body of the Pope effectively belonged to the entire Catholic Church. You had a thing about the Pope's... Uh, the Pope dying or the death ritual. The death of the Pope. Of the Pope. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's basically when a Pope dies. They haven't done this for the last two Popes, but every Pope before they have done. Uh, to confirm that he's dead, they gently tap him on the head with a silver hammer and call his name out three times. <laughs> hey, Pope! <laughs> they, they say his birth name just to make sure he's really dead. It's a right. tradition. It's a small silver hammer. I remember reading an article about when the Pope died and there was a brilliant line in it. I always remember it. It's, um, when a Pope dies, his seals are defaced and his ring is split in two. Which is going to be particularly poignant when the latest one goes because of his Lord of the Rings and Hobbit. <laughs> that has to be taken to Mount Etna. <laughs> thrown in. Thrown um, into the map. I, do you know what? I, I also um, I was suddenly thinking, I don't know much about how they choose a Pope. Like, how do they actually find the next Pope? And You know, I could technically be a Pope. As in, they could choose me if they wanted to. I how? think you should be. Because the rule is, I th- I'm pretty sure this is right, the rule is that um, as long as you're a baptised and confirmed Roman Catholic, um, you could technically be chosen as a pope. I mean, they usually choose a cardinal, but theoretically, they could just knock on my door and say, "You're in." The only I, thing that might stop me is I think I might have been um, excommunicated already. Um, you because... think you might have been excommunicated? Yeah, that's I... a very hazy <laughs> night out, isn't it? <laughs> I was in this nightclub. <laughs> No, what, what? <laughs> Don't worry, I know the bouncer. <laughs> well, what it is, is there's, there's certain things that if you do them, you can be excommunicated even without any priest or pope say so. They're, they're just so bad that you are excommunicated. And I have done one of these things. And that is mentioning Jesus' foreskin. Oh. And because I was... He's pa- done it again. He's done it again. <laughs> James, your chances of being pope are narrowing all the time. Well, we mentioned it on QI, and so um, yeah. as part of the as a team who wrote that wrote that script, yeah. Yeah, that means as it. a Roman Catholic, I think I'm out. Everyone who works on the production has now is well, now out of the running. Especially you, I know you would have made a brilliant pope. Thank you. I know. <laughs> I think it only on the counts if you're a Roman Catholic. Yes. The rest of you are going to hell anyway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to it. Um, so, okay, if you were going to be made Pope, um, there's, they, they've put a new rule in quite recently, which is you have to be under 80 to vote. Why do you have to be under 80? That seems unfair. Anyone who can successfully complete a black run uh, <laughs> on speed can vote. But so do you know, do you know how they... So they, they obviously select the Pope, but they have, mm. to, they have to ask the Pope first off. It's an official sentence that needs mm. to be said. And they all go, no. No, me? I come on. I, why, why? No, so the question that they get asked is, do you freely accept your election as supreme pontiff and the one word answer that they give is accepto (laughs) (laughs) is that wonderful that's more harry potter than lord of the rings (laughs) (laughs) and then they walk through the door of tears and then they get fitted with the fisherman's ring 
which is the ring that you were talking about earlier that we now need to throw into the fires of Mordor. I, t- I just want to say this, this is pretty non sequitur, but it's my favourite fact about any popes in history. Uh, in the 15th century, Pope Sixtus IV granted a formal dispensation to the Cardinal of St. Lucia to cool himself by sodomy during the three hot months of June, July and August. <laughs> Amazing. That's very thoughtful. I'm just, I'm just so warm. <laughs> I, I really think that if I was allowed to commit sodomy, I'd feel much cooler and considered maybe a cold bar. That is an amazing, amazing fact. Okay, let's move on to fact number three, which is you, James. A hundred years ago, a quarter of the residents of New York would move house every single May the 1st at exactly 9am. That's extraordinary. Why? I read this the other day. I can't remember where I came across it, but I was just astonished that I hadn't heard it before. It just seems like the kind of thing that I would have come across. And what would happen is people who were renting their houses would have a one-year lease, and all the leases would end on the same day. And the landlords would up the rent so much that they needed to find a better deal. And everyone would do this, and everyone would move. Oh. And it was absolute pandemonium, absolute yeah. chaos. Unsurprising. Yeah. yeah. It sounds... <laughs> what a terrible system. Bad idea. When did that go up till? Um, that was until um, the 1940s, I think. But, I mean, it was more common in the late 19th century and early 20th century. That is... It's such a bad idea. I know, because moving is yeah. the most stressful thing you can do. Yeah. <laughs> what if you were doing it at the same time as a quarter of all residents of your oh city? Oh, goodness. Maybe it's mo- there's something moral supporty about it. And, you know, you come out onto the street and it's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's same for you, hey? A bit like the Blitz spirit kind yeah, of thing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, and it, and uh, something that I read about it was that the big kind of important people, suddenly, of, this, of, that, um, of the city were the cartmen. The right. people who drove the car, who yeah. suddenly were treated with respect that they'd never seen before. <laughs> people would be bowing to them, calling them Mr. Cartman. Uh, <laughs> and, and treating, Mr. Cartman. Yeah. Is this Mr. Whatever your name is. Screw Carrie. you guys. <laughs> Screw you guys. You're not going to a home. <laughs> there was um, uh, Anthony Trollope's mother uh, wrote about it, and I just want to quickly read out this little passage. Um, She said, On the 1st of May, the city of New York has the appearance of sending off a population flying from the plague, or of a town which has surrendered on condition of carrying away all their goods and chattels. Everyone I spoke to on the subject complained of this custom as most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable. And what I love about this is it's something which is completely, obviously impractical, but people still did it and just thought, oh, well, this is obviously the only way. We're just going to have to put up with it. Mm. And I think that's happened quite a few times in history. I think it's quite cool. In India at the moment, they're trying to change the time by shifting this certain area of India by 30 minutes forward. They would save 2.7 billion units of electricity every year. And that's the reason they want to do it. But everyone's petrified of it because they're saying it's going to cause chaos. And I, it just made me think that, yeah. you know, daylight savings is a thing that we all just very... Yeah. We just do it. We just say, okay, the, the time has changed. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, maybe in the future that will be... They'll just look at it yeah, and go, yeah. these guys were idiots. Yeah. Remember when um, they wanted to work out where the, um, the zero longitude was? Yeah. And it goes through Greenwich now. Um, so we call it GMT. Um, but at the same time, the French wanted to put it through Paris, 
which means if we'd have done that, it would have been called PMT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me a fact about this whole thing of uh, chaotic movement, and it was to do with um, the swapping of... So, yeah, this was in Sweden. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but they always drove on the left-hand side, and they decided to drive on the right-hand side, and they decided to do it all at one time. So everyone would drive on the left, and then all of a sudden they would all decide to drive on the right at a certain time. That's amazing. I know. Do you want to phase it in gradually? No, no. (laughs) Deep end. So what happened was everyone would drive on the left until 4.50 and then come to a complete stop. No one was allowed to drive for 10 minutes, and then everyone would carefully move to the right-hand side of the road and start driving again, and you weren't allowed to start again until 5. What How'd that go? Can you imagine if you were the only person in the country who hadn't got the memo? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? That would be brilliant. It was called, did, it, did it work? Well, weirdly it did. And um, There's lots of pictures that it looks a bit like chaotic, but mm. it was called, um, I'm going to get this wrong, I'm sure, but it was something like Herger Traffic on Lagningen, or they call it Dagen H, which means the H day. Uh, and on that day, there were only 125 reported traffic accidents, but on a normal Monday, there would be between 130 and 198. Wow. And there were no fatalities. So actually, it was a safer day than normal. So we should switch sides of the road every single day to keep fatalities down. <laughs> I think we've got a moral duty to do that. Absolutely. <laughs> what a brilliant idea. <laughs> But you would be more careful. It's like the idea yeah. of um, some innovator has come up with the spike in the middle of the steering wheel, which is pointing directly at your heart, <laughs> which would make us all drive very carefully. <laughs> the spike of Damocles. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea. <laughs> Don't get an airbag, get a spike get if a you sh- really want to be safe. <laughs> there would be a lot fewer people hit by cars, but a lot more people driving cars would die <laughs> of spike-related injuries. <laughs> Another spike, I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, I think we can make this a quick autopsy, can't yeah. we? Yeah. <laughs> the husband's been tragically impaled God, by his yeah. new under. <laughs> tragically impaled because he couldn't get the right clutch. Oh, he just <laughs> and, and, and yet another seat adjustment accident. <laughs> and there's another even more complicated theory that actually it wouldn't affect the number of statistics we have because people always drive at the very edge of safety. There was a study done um, on this. I can't remember all the details, but there was a study done and it was a level crossing, and the, they measured how quickly people were driving, and it was just about the safest they could do and slam on and still not hit a train. And then they put a, a hedge in front of the level crossing so you wouldn't be able to see it until a bit later, and they found that people slowed down, but only to the extent that they would have to slam on and just about mm. miss the train. Wow. We are yeah. risk-takers. So going back to the obviously impractical, in Micronesia... They had these maps, and the maps were um, they were made of sticks and made of um, rope, and the maps would be related to the waves, because waves change when they go past islands. And so you would look at your map and look at the waves, and you'd be able to tell where, which way to go. Now, the um, waves are not very easy to see, so you have to somehow detect the waves, and the best way that they found to do it was to put the most sensitive part of your body into the sea, which was your testicles. So they would dip their testicles into the ocean and measure the waves, and then they would look at their map and decide which way to go to get to the next island. The thing is, I just like the fact that, I mean, dipping your testicles in the water and looking at a map is a completely impractical way of finding <laughs> But they just thought, well, you know, that's the best yeah. way we have, we're just going to do it. It's just as well that you'd have to do it today, isn't it? Excuse me, sorry, do you know the way to the swimming pool? Yeah, hang on a second, just uh, get my beaker. <laughs> 
Okay, let's uh, move on to our final fact of the show. Andy, uh, this is your one. Okay, this is that nobody knows why we kiss. Is that you and I, or...? (laughs) (laughs) Especially not your wife or my girlfriend. Um, no, it's, it's, there are a couple of theories as to why humans kiss each other uh, f- as opposed to just for pleasure but, or because it feels good. Um, but no, it, it's, it's not clear um, with the answer one way or the other. Basically, it's between whether we instinctively do it or whether it's a learned behaviour. Well, I remember reading that actually it's not historically that all cultures kiss, is it? So yeah. um, that would imply that it's not... Yeah. It's not instinctive to, yeah. Yeah, to Homo sapiens. Yeah, I think... The, the, the theory as to it being instinctual is that um, mothers would mash up food in their mouth, they would chew the food themselves and they'd transfer it into their infant's mouth. Yeah. And so all we're really trying to do when we kiss each other is recreate the nice feeling of one's mother uh, regurgitating food into your mouth. So we all love that. Certainly why I do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I read that it was the kind of the global spread of kissing as a, as a common thing was done by the Romans. Oh, really? Yeah, they were a vibrant kissing culture, apparently. And they maybe brought it in from India? Have you read that bit? No, but the weird sentence I read is that um, they they did it via military conquest. So it was actually through (laughs) war that kissing... Well, was much thing. less kiss each other now. <laughs> I read about one culture that doesn't kiss, and these are the people of Mangaya, which is an island in the Cook Islands, and um, they—it's um, written about them that they don't kiss at all. But the way they make up for it is they are one of the most sexually active groups of people <laughs> in the world. And um, I'm going to quote this: uh, At 28 years of age, they average two orgasms per night, five to six times a week. The expectation is that the male will strive to have his partner have two or three orgasms to his one. So wow. basically, they're the most orgasmic people, but they don't kiss. Or they're the most compulsive liars in the world. <laughs> that's the, that's a mean? society of amazing braggers. Yeah. Had like eight <laughs> orgasms last night. I don't know about you. My girlfriend had three times as many. So <laughs> nonsense. Um, there is a thought that in I think Cato the Elder said this that um, yes, yeah, the Romans did like to kiss, but there's a theory that Romans kissed their wives to check whether or not they've been drinking. And Cato wrote that a um, husband was considered to be acting within his legal right if he killed his wife after catching her drinking or with alcohol on her breath. That's true. Did you guys read that it's only this year, the 2014 edition of the French Dictionary, that French kissing is now a word in France? This is the word... Galoche. Galoche. La galoche is an ice skating boot. And so the new term <laughs> is the idea of tongues slipping on ice. Slipping on ice? Yeah, they're like an ice skating boot. They're not as romantic as we have given them credit for. I did a lot of slipping on ice last night. Yeah. I use the official word uh, cataglottism. Yeah. Ooh. That's why you do so well. <laughs> There's a book called The Science of Kissing by Cheryl Kirschenbaum, uh, which I really enjoyed. I've read not all of it, but some of it. The author says that 90% of people can remember their first kiss better than the first time they had sex. Is yeah. that to do with um, drunkenness? Or... I don't know. <laughs> that's a very... That's Usually. a good point. Yeah. Um, I bet it is. I, 
Uh, do you guys know the first video footage of a kiss? It was actually one of the first films ever shown to the public. And it was a couple kissing, and it was from a scene which was in a play called The Widow Jones. And, and you can see the video online. It was filmed by the Edison Company. The quote they gave around it was, they get ready to kiss, begin to kiss, and kiss and kiss and kiss in a way that brings down the house every time. That's that was the description, yeah. yeah. And so we'll put that on qi.com slash podcast. You can see the very first recorded video kiss. I thought you were going to mention um, the first film to win Best Picture. Um, this was called Wings, I think. Going off memory, but Andy's nodding, so I think he might be right. Yeah. But there is a man-on-man kiss. Yes, there is. It's two uh, soldiers or yeah. aviators in the first world. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the, you were saying about The Widow Jones, the first yeah. cinematic kiss. I just wanted to quickly mention the review that it was given by a painter yeah. called John Sloan. This is also possibly the first film review ever. This is in 1896. He said, The kiss is absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Neither participant is physically attractive, and the spectacle of their prolonged pasturing on each other's lips was hard to bear. When only life-sized, it was pronounced beastly, magnified to gargantuan proportions, it is absolutely disgusting. Such things call for police interference. <laughs> That's amazing. Allegedly the first ever film review. Police interference, call the police, shut it down. He just got out of a difficult relationship. Yeah. <laughs> but if you watch the video as well, it's hilarious because they basically spend half the clip with their mouth to each other, but they're just chatting mm. to each other. Yeah, they're snuggled up really close. They're literally, their mouth to mouth just going, oh yeah, hey, <laughs> Talking into each other's mouths almost, yeah. Obviously, um, a lot of cultures have a different um, way of greeting. Kissing, you know, the French will kiss on both cheeks. It's always a confusion. You don't know how many times you're kissing. For politicians, it's a big problem, particularly when they're meeting heads of states who particularly they shouldn't be seen as having an intimate moment with. And I learned that Bill Clinton, when he was introduced to Yasser Arafat, because Yasser Arafat's a big hugger, and there was a period where that he couldn't, just couldn't get a hug from Yasser Arafat, so he had to avoid it. And the way that he avoided it was that his aides taught him jujitsu so that he could pull specific moves on Arafat whenever he went in for a hug. What, threw him over his shoulder? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you watch some of the footage, you'll notice that Arafat suddenly gets flipped to the ground. <laughs> no, but so Clinton was actively taught jujitsu huh. in order to avoid the Arafat hug. Arafat finally got a hug on him, though, at one point. And there's a photo that you can Headlock. see of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bill Clinton tries to avoid physical contact. <laughs> Monica Lewinsky said that he initially kissed her, or well, the first time he kissed her, it was to shut her up about something because she was rabbiting on her words. I think really? I that she's putting a more <laughs> charitable interpretation on it than yes. it might deserve. Maybe she accidentally walked into the Oval Office and she said, Sorry, I got lost. I was looking for the staff room. Do you know where it is? And said, I do have a method. <laughs> Okay, that's all the time we have for this week. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. That's been another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the facts that we've been talking about, you can find us all on Twitter. Andy, you're on... At Andrew Hunter M. Uh, James, you're on... At Eggshaped. Anna, we are almost convincing to get onto Twitter, but in the meantime, at Wikipedia. Yeah. Um, and I'm at Schreiberland. Also, special thanks to Emperor Yes for the theme tune that they've given us, which is Wasps. Uh, there's a full version of that song on iTunes that you can download or check out their SoundCloud or follow them on Twitter at Emperor underscore Yes. And if you want to head over to www.qi.com slash podcast, we're going to have a full page again of all the information, extra links, the first kiss, all that sort of stuff. You can check it out and we'll see you again next time uh, next week. Bye.